0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. How y'all doing? Everybody doing good this morning? Good. Some of you are awake. Some of you aren't. That's okay. We'll try and wake you up a little bit here this morning. So, I lucked out this week. I I am I'm still young, but as many of you like to point out, until recently, I haven't been I've been preaching long enough to uh, have have had like old sermons until this week. This week, I, uh, I opened up the text and I was looking at it, Matthew 18. It's like, man, I think I, I think I preached on this before. And so I went back and I actually read my manuscript. And we did a series about two and a half years ago, years ago called Dealing with Drama. Dealing with Drama, talking about how to fight fair as a Christian. And one of the sermons that I preached was on Matthew 18. And so I did not just like cut and paste and, and recycle that. That's not what I feel called to do, right? The Lord wants us to, to hear a fresh word from him every week. And so, But, I, but I, did, I did find some things that I felt really helpful. And so I'm going to use a little bit of that message that I preached probably two and a half years ago. You'll, you'll see that in there. You say, why are you telling me all this? I'm telling you this because I'm not going to try and cram all three weeks of those sermons into this one. You're welcome. All right, we're going to try and keep it shorter. But I will say, if at the end of this, you feel like your your appetite has been whetted, but you'd like some more information, I'll point you to our website. Go and check out our series called Dealing with Drama. You'll find three different messages in there that hopefully, if you don't get enough from this morning, um, and even, even the message that I'll share uh, from today, it's a little different. So if you, want, if you want a little bit more information, go check that out. So just by... Uh, way of, uh, I don't know, introduction there. Go check that out if you want. Also, don't be surprised uh, if you hear some of the things that I said then today. That's that's what's going on. So to kick things off this morning, we are going to be in Matthew. But before we get into the book of Matthew, I want to take things way back, way back, like a couple thousand years back. And we're going to start actually in the book of Genesis to Adam and Eve. Now, you don't have to turn there. But if you were to go to all the way back into Genesis 1, and more specifically Genesis chapter 4, you would learn of the story about Adam and Eve and how they're kicked out of the garden because of their failure to obey God. They don't trust God. They sin. And God says, I can't let you live in this place where the tree of life exists, right? If you eat from the life, you, the tree of life, you'll never die. I can't let you live in this fallen state forever. And so for your protection and your good, you have to leave the garden. And you're going to go out and it's going to be hard work and all this stuff. And then they have children. Adam and Eve uh, give birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel, if you read about that in Genesis 4, Cain threw a series of several unfortunate sins. And we don't get like a crazy in-depth story, but as you'll find, sin, sin doesn't just like kill us immediately. It's a slow fade. And so there's a series of, of kind of some, some weirdness going on in Cain's life. And eventually, it winds up where Cain murders his brother. It's the first murder that happens in all of human history. He kills his brother, Abel. If you want to do a deeper dive, like I said, you can look at Genesis 4. You can read that, and you'll not be surprised that if you go to gotquestions.org and type in, why did God accept uh, Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? There's an awesome uh, exploration of all of that. So if you want to read a little bit more about that, you can go to Genesis, or, uh, gotquestions.org. And if you were to read all of that, to kind of summarize, after Abel's murder, we'll see that God seeks out Cain. He goes looking for him. And when he shows up, he asks him a question. He says, Cain, where is your brother Abel? Where's your brother Abel? And Cain's reply is one that you and I have felt that we will feel on lots of different occasions throughout our lives. As we live in a family, you are going to feel what Cain feels, and it's resentment. It's resentment. The Lord shows up, he says, where's your brother? And Cain responds, he says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? This question, as you read that story, you can almost like hear the, the resentment and the sneer that comes out of his mouth, right? He's angry because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his. So God shows up, says, where's your brother? He's like, am I my brother's keeper? He's your favorite. You go find him. Am I my brother's keeper? If you go read that story later, my guess is that you would read it like I read it. That you would read yourself more naturally as being the Abel in the story, right? And that's because none of us, most of us, I'm assuming most of us, have not committed murder. We probably won't. And so when we read the story, we like to think, yeah, we're, we're able, we're God's favorite, we do things right. The problem with that is, most of us are probably more in line with Cain than we care to admit. For one thing, Scripture teaches us that when we get angry, when we get angry and we hate our brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters in humanity, Christ tells us that it's as if we've murdered them in the eyes of the Father. Well, I'm pretty sure that most of us in here have gotten angry with someone and, and been hateful for, for, towards someone. So scripture would say, actually, we're, we're a, more, a lot more like Cain than we care to admit. So that's one reason why we should identify with Cain. The other one is that I think that all of us would recognize the resentment that he feels when the Lord says, hey, where's your brother? And he says, well, am I my brother's keeper? You see, as we go through life, that resentment creeps up when people around us fail, especially people around us that ought to know better. And then God tells us what he tells us in Matthew 18 that actually we're called to be our brother's keeper, to insert ourselves in not so fair situations sometimes in love, to insert ourselves in, and make other people's business our business. When God shows up and he says, hey, have you seen what so-and-so is doing? Have you seen where your brother or sister are at? A lot of us will feel that resentment that Cain feels by asking that question. Am I my brother's keeper? God, you deal with this. When God says, actually, I have put you on this earth to help me deal with it. I am going to deal with it, but I want to deal with it through you. The problem is, we struggle. We struggle with cowardice. We're afraid sometimes to insert ourselves in some of these sticky situations. Other times, we lack the commitment to truly love our fellow believers. Regardless, whether we're too afraid to do it, whether we lack the commitment, each and every one of us will be faced with occasions like this from time to time. We'll be confronted with an opportunity with the calling, with the responsibility that Christ places upon us to expose one another's faults. It's not fun. It's not always fair. But exposing one another's faults in love is what faithfulness to God looks like, and it's what faithfulness looks like to the family of God, which is the church. You remember from last week we said We would do well to choose faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to God, rather than choosing fairness. It's not that fairness doesn't matter. But when God invites us into situations, he says, you let me deal with the fairness. You be faithful. You be faithful. Again, the reality is when you get found by Jesus, yes, he saves you alone as an individual. And we love that as Americans. Individuals. I'm my own man, right? I'll do my own thing. Don't tell me what to do. And it's true, when Jesus saves us, you are saved as an individual, but you are never meant to stay alone. You're never meant to stay alone. When God saves you as an individual, he saves you into a family, and that family is known as the church. The role of the church, the role of the church family is similar to that of a nuclear family, right? Right? What's the job of parents? The job of parents is to raise and rear children that grow up, that become mature adults. That's what the church exists to do. That's what your job is in the church. You're meant to be a parent, an elder, to help raise up the young people into mature believers that look like Jesus. We talked about this several weeks ago in the Summer in the Psalm series, right? In the Summer in the Psalm series, I shared with you that The purpose of this church and all churches is to help Christians grow up into their age and stage of life. To grow up into their God-given potential at their age and stage of life. Specifically here at Crossroads, we said that looks like helping the lost get found by Jesus and helping those who have been found by Jesus learn to live increasingly in his freedom. But more simply, it's just to, we want you to grow up, to look more like Jesus. That's why we exist. That's what we're striving to do. That's our goal. And within this task of child-rearing, of helping Christians become mature, exposing faults is sometimes unfair, but it is entirely necessary. That is the responsibility of parents in the church, of parents in the home, It's our job to point out when our children, in the faith or physically in the home, when they're failing, when they're messing up, when they're acting like how we don't act as a people of God, God says, I want you to expose their faults. I'm inviting you to call them to account, hold them accountable. And so this morning, I want to spend the rest of our time together looking with you at a text that outlines for us how we're supposed to go about exposing faults within the family of God. The reality is, and here's the big idea for today's message, the reality is if we're going to be a community that makes mature Christians, we all need to take up the sometimes unfair process of exposing faults, of exposing sin. So with that in mind, let's read it together in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. There am I with them. All right. I think it's really important before we kind of go through the process that's outlined for us, we ask two questions. One, what's the goal of this process? And two, who is this process for? Who are the people of the process? So first, what's the goal of this process? Well, first, let me tell you what, what the goal is not. It's not to gossip. That's not what God's calling us into. The goal is also not to tear down someone who's hurt you. Someone who's offended you or trying to get back at them. That's not what God's calling us to. The goal in exposing sin and faults in our brothers and sisters in Christ is to do precisely what verse 15 tells us. Look at it with me. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. You have won them over. That's the goal. When someone is sinning, when someone is is living counter to how the people of God ought to be living, exposing their faults is an opportunity to win them back, to win them over. And this, this is where the issue of fairness starts to creep into our thinking, right? As Wes said, it's kind of scary. Being open to receiving correction is one thing, and we should be. We should be humble, as as we live together with one another, willing to let other people speak into our lives, the scary part is to be that person who's speaking into someone's life, right? Someone who sinned or someone who might not be living up to the image of Christ that they're called to live into. When When we're given that opportunity, we can start to think about fairness and about our own feelings, right? Well, what if, what if I share my hurt with this person? How they hurt me, how they offended me, how I see that they're, they're erring. Error, what if I share this with them and they don't apologize? What if they get angry? What if in this process they just say more hurtful things to me? What then? Or worse, what if they do apologize? What if they do seek my forgiveness? I don't know if I want to be friends with these people after what they did to me. Who's to say they won't hurt me again? I can't tell you how many times throughout my life in ministry, discipling men and women, how oftentimes times I've pressed in and said, man, you, you really got to forgive. And the question always comes, how, how much? If you, if you stick your foot out here, I've heard this probably four or five times, these exact words. If you stick your foot out and it gets run over by a semi, you're supposed to just keep putting it out there? How often do I have to keep moving towards these people that that hurt me? Right? It's not fair. The text says the goal is not fairness. The goal is to win our brothers and sisters back. And it's a goal that, if we're honest, we don't always really want, do we? It's risky business, this process of holding one another accountable. It's not necessarily fair. Especially when the person who's being confronted should know better. This person ought to know better. It's not always fun. It's not always fair to expose one another's faults. But church, it is loving. It's loving. Again, it's what faithfulness to Christ looks like lived out in Christian community. The goal, it might not be fair. It's what we're called to do. It's also, in exposing faults, we're not meant to condemn people. We're not meant to bring the pain and bring vengeance down on people. That's not the heart. No, the heart of winning our brother back is to save them, to protect them, and to reconcile the relationship. Think about this with me for a second. Who wakes up in the morning and just out of nowhere decides to cheat on their spouse or decides to embezzle money from their boss or decides to murder someone? Generally speaking... No one makes split-second decisions in life that will change our lives in crazy ways, right? Like, you don't just wake up one morning and commit that one giant sin that wrecks your entire life. No. God tells Cain in Genesis, he says that sin is like a lion. It's crouching at our door, waiting to devour us, waiting to consume us. But it's not like a quick flip of the switch. It doesn't all happen at once. Sin is a slow fade. We sort of slide deeper and deeper into it. Growing up in youth ministry, Nate Hamblin used to say, Levi, sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go every single time. It does, always. Sin takes us farther than we ever intended to go, further and further down the rabbit hole of destruction. And so, while it might not always be fair to call one another on our sins... You and I have a responsibility of love to be on the lookout for this lion in the lives of our brothers and sisters, to help protect them. They don't always see where they're erring. You can't always see your blind spots. You need people to come alongside you to help you see what, what you cannot. And so you and I have a responsibility to be our brother's keeper. If we allow sin to run rampant in someone's life and say nothing... It isn't minding your own business. Saying nothing, it's not a neutral act. Saying nothing is not just unloving church, it's far worse than that. It's hateful. Do you really hate your brothers and sisters that much that you won't risk the relationship to insert yourself into a messy situation? I hope not. I've used this analogy before. You all would fire a doctor who sees cancer on a scan and decides, you know what, I care more about my comfort and this relationship and being liked with this person. I just can't bear to bring this news to them. You'd fire that guy. Why? Because it's not just unloving, it's malpractice. It's malpractice. It's hateful. It's unacceptable for Christ followers. As Christians, we must love one one another enough to take the risk of exposing faults to our brothers and sisters for their sake, for the sake of their salvation, and also for the sake of their growth and maturity as believers in Jesus. Much like a doctor tells the truth about whatever shows up on one of those scans, so too we have a responsibility to expose faults and sins in the lives of others within the church to protect And to restore the relationship. Now, this is where, again, fairness creeps in. I'm sure many of us can think about relationships that we have with others that have been just completely broken by sin. Abuse, hurt, absence. There's so much hurt that we can inflict on one another. And many of you have been on the receiving end of that. So you might be thinking, okay, I can confront, yeah, but what if they don't do this or that, and do I really want to be reconciled to this person? Levi, I don't know if that's safe. I'm going to address that in a second, but before I do, in love, what if Jesus took that attitude towards us? Towards us. We have hurt him. I know you weren't there when it happened, But your sin and my sin put Jesus up on the cross. Talk about abuse. What if Jesus would have said, I'm glad to be rid of him. I'm glad that that I never have to come in contact with her again. I'm done. What if Jesus would have taken that attitude towards us? You and I would be lost forever, church. Eternally separated from the God of heaven. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? He did what wasn't fair. He did what was faithful. He moved towards you and I in love. People who beat him, put a crown of thorns on his head, hung him on a cross to die a criminal's death, and he was innocent. He forgave us. But church, he didn't just forgive you and I. He didn't just make peace with us and then agree to tolerate us from a distance. (laughs) No, he restored the friendship. He united himself with us in deep and meaningful relationship. That's the goal of Matthew 18. It's protection. Protect your fellow brother from that lion of sin. And also, it's restoration. To restore what sin broke. The goal of Matthew 18, you, just, you can't just say, I forgive you, but I don't want anything to do with you. That's not the heart of Matthew 18. The heart of Matthew 18 is radical love. The radical love of Jesus that says, I know what you did. I need you to know that it hurt me. That this is not how the people of God act. But I forgive you. So does Jesus. Jesus. And because Jesus forgave me, I forgive you. And, and, this is the last part, that's important. I would like for you to still be in my life. And I realize this doesn't always happen. I realize that this goal isn't always possible. That sometimes relationships can't be fully restored this side of heaven. I understand that there are times where healthy boundaries need to be put in place to protect victims of abuse. Right? Right? I'm not saying the degree to which you have to have a relationship, but I'm just saying the goal is to restore the relationship. There might need to be some severe boundaries put in place because of what's happened. But this is the goal. This is the goal. This is the goal of Matthew 18. Now, who's this for? The people of the process. We talked about the goal of the process, and we're talking about the people of the process. Who's this for? This process is for brothers and sisters in Jesus. And by that, I mean professing Christians. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a time to talk with unbelievers about sin and salvation. There absolutely is. But I think that you will find confronting unbelievers about disobedience to a God that they don't believe in is a relatively unfruitful exercise. There's work to be done there, right? But it's a different kind of work. And it's not, what, it's not the work that's outlined for us in Matthew 18. This process here is for believers who profess to know and love Jesus and who are in relationship with one another. So it's, it's when the, within the context of a local church. While this isn't explicitly stated in verse 15, I think it is implied that this verse assumes that you're close enough to the potential offender in the relationship. You're close enough to them, you live in community with them, that you're able to see the issues presented firsthand, okay? You haven't heard about it at the coffee shop. You didn't catch, it in, catch wind of it through the grapevine or, or the prayer meeting that sadly sometimes is more of a gossip meeting than actually a prayer meeting, right? No, you, you've witnessed it firsthand. It's not gossip, it's not hearsay. You've seen it, you've witnessed it. And church, this is why it's so important that you don't just attend a service on Sunday morning. You need to be living life together in community so that you know one another. If we're going to love one another as Christ calls us to, then we have to know each other beyond our Sunday bests, right? Y'all look good on Sunday morning. Y'all cleaned up, you got smiles on your face. We can fake it for an hour on Sunday can't we? We can. We can all fake it for an hour on Sunday. But when you're in your connection groups, when you're investing in meaningful relationships outside of Sunday morning, your people, your fridge friends, I just found out that there's such a thing as toilet friends this morning. (laughs) You can ask Caleb what that's all about later. (laughs) Apparently there was was an emergency and... uh, He was close to one of you all. I was like, hey, can we stop and use your toilet, right? (laughs) Fridge friends, right? People that you're close, you feel comfortable with. They know you. You live life together. You feel like if my kid's got to go number two, I can stop. We can can use your restroom. It's not going to be weird, right? You need to have that level of relationship with one another so that we know when things aren't fine, even though you're smiling on a Sunday morning. We know that everything is not fine. Everything is not okay. You're not feeling hashtag blessed like your Instagram says. You've got a serious anger issue at work. You've got a drinking problem. You're really good at hiding, except for those who are closest to you. You hate your father or your mother or both. You're on the verge of a divorce. You're in a back and forth with one of your neighbors. You're reckless with your money. You're about to declare bankruptcy. All of us, church, we're not fine. We don't have it all together. Many of us have serious sin in our lives. Some of it we're aware of, but probably a lot of it we're not because we can't see it. Which is why it's so important that you and I strive to be keepers of our brothers and sisters. Take the responsibility of exposing fault seriously. The one exposing fault here in Matthew 18 knows the person well. They're in community together around the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're close with one another. Close enough for it to be messy. It is messy. Close enough to get hurt. They're not bringing speculations or gossip. They're bringing firsthand knowledge of a fault and offense. They aren't bringing it to condemn or to crush. They're expressing concern gently and privately, in hopes to win the person over, to win them back, to Jesus, and to win the friendship back as well. Make sense? That's the goal. That's who this process is for. Let's look at the process together here briefly. What is this process exactly? Well, Matthew 18, verse 15 tells us right up front, says you've seen some con- concerning behavior from a Christian friend this could be something done against you it could be a, a pattern that you've seen in general and you decided that because you love them and you know that sin will always lead every one of us farther than we ever intended to go because you love them and you know the reality of sin crouching at their door you feel compelled you feel compelled uh, uh, you feel called you feel the responsibility To help your brother see what they might not see for themselves, you bring the issue to their attention. So you set up a meeting in private. Hey, can we go get a cup of coffee? I've noticed something I want to talk to you about. Could be nothing, but I love you and I'd love to talk with you more about it. You sit down with them in private. I love you. You say, I've noticed some behavior, I've noticed a pattern of speech. I'm concerned. I'm concerned where this issue might lead you. Again, in love, you expose the fault that you perceive. You make your concern known and you speak the truth in love with grace. You give the person the ability to push back. You give them the benefit of the doubt. You assume the best. Hey, I could be misunderstanding things here, but hear me out. Is what I'm seeing reality? Is it just my perception? I could be off. But if, it's, if this is real, I'm really concerned where this might lead you. Do I have any right to be concerned? Are you concerned? And church, this might be all that's ever required. Through this gentle wake-up call, you may have exposed the lion crouching at the door. And this brother might be wise to its attack, to its deception. He might say, thank you for pointing out this. I didn't even know. I hadn't seen it. Thank you for telling me i got to change this. Help me think about a plan where we can change this. Let's pray about this together. Let's like invite Jesus in here to, to change my heart. They might, they might repent and turn from their ways and receive the forgiveness and have reconciliation be hap- happen, right? They might choose a different route. If that happens, praise Jesus. You've won them back. Or, this is the risky part, they may respond poorly. Who the heck are you? You don't know what you're talking about why don't you worry about the log in your own eye right they know a little bit of scripture why don't you i've seen this that and the other thing let's talk about your sin let's talk about your problems why don't you not button my business or i've seen this too they downplay it they dismiss it you're just misunderstanding the situation if you really knew what i had to deal with at home you'd understand Then they may justify and explain away while they own none of it. At that point, it's time to double back, as verse 16 says. It's time to double back. You as the confronting party, you need to prayerfully reconsider. Maybe there is no fault. Maybe maybe you saw something that wasn't reality. Maybe you misheard or or missaw. That could be. Pray over it. But if as you pray, you realize, actually, no, there is something here. Well, then Scripture says, okay, it's time, it's time to bring some more people in at that point. And this doesn't mean go find a coalition of other people who hate so-and-so just as much as you, right? We're going to get them. No. Remember the goal. We go find some objective, godly friends who also have a relational connection and some concern, who can evaluate things. Hey, I had this conversation. Here's what I've seen. Have you seen this? Yeah, we have a testimony of two or three witnesses, evidence. Yeah, you know, we we've seen this pattern. We, there's still some, some care fronting that needs to, to happen, right? And then you go back. Jim Bob, that's his name. None of you were named that. That's why I chose it. Jim Bob, we're concerned for you. We've all seen this type of behavior. You've said this. You've done this honestly. You've hurt us in this way or that way with your actions We believe that it's not only contrary to God's word, but this isn't how we as a people of God act. We're concerned for you. We think you might need some help. We think you might need to repent, to turn away from this thing in your life. And at that point, the person may realize, you're right. You're right. Thank you. And you begin the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. Or, sadly, they may dig their heels in even deeper which is where verse 17 comes in. And if so, if they dig their heels even deeper, you bring it to the church, to the leadership, to the elders of your church. And again, you reevaluate. Maybe we're misreading the situation. Holy Spirit, are we seeing this right? Should we press on and press in here with this issue? Maybe, maybe not. If so, you repeat the same process. You have a meeting, you bring everybody together with the elders all parties involved, you go through it again. And if again the person is deemed to be in sin and refuses to confess and repent, at that point, Matthew 18 says that the church is to treat such a person as a tax collector or a Gentile. Essentially, this looks like calling into question the genuineness of this person's faith, going so far as to withhold communion from them until they repent and are reconciled. Because we're concerned about them, rather than drinking grace down upon them, which tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I believe, they'll actually be drinking judgment down upon themselves, which we don't want. So again, for their pr- protection, for their reconciliation to Jesus and others, hey, until you recognize this issue, we're actually going to withhold communion from you. This is a big deal. Matt Chandler summarizes the whole process really well. He says it like this. He says, as Christians, they will know us by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love because when we're frustrated with someone, we don't herd up with everyone else and complain about them or talk bad about them and talk about their weaknesses in a group, but rather, we love them enough to sit down with them. And we go, hey, can I ask you a question? Is this going on? I have picked up on this. I'm nervous for you. I love you. I'm concerned where this is going to end. And then if they're like, yeah, I can handle it. Okay, this is hard, but I can handle it. Expose my faults. Show me my sin. Thank you for helping me here. I want to grow up like Jesus. Thank you, bring it. If they say that, then the gates have opened and you've gained a brother back. If not, then you head down the long process of seeking to win them over by involving involving friends and eventually church leadership. And if at the end they still don't see the light, it might be time to call into question their faith. Here's the deal, church. As I said at the beginning, we exist to help mature believers, to make them mature, right? To help people act up to their God-given potential for their age and stage of life. That potential, that maturity, it has a standard. It has an example. And His name is Jesus Christ. We're meant to look more and more like him in how we think and how we behave and how we speak. He is our standard. And if we're meant to be our brother's keeper in regards to helping each other grow up more and more into the image of Christ, then we have to be willing to call each other to account when we're not living up into that image. You see, while we aren't called to be judgmental of those outside the church, they need to get found first. Jesus does not expect that we we judge outsiders, but inside the church, he does ask us to be fruit inspectors for our brothers and sisters. In accordance with that, he tells us this business about binding and loosing. He says, well, we can't withhold or give salvation because we're not God, right? That's not what he's at. He's not saying grant salvation or withhold salvation. We can't do that. We're not God. We also, we can't forgive sin either, because we're not God. But we can be fruit inspectors, and we can expose faults. If someone professes to believe in Jesus, and their lives are shown to bear out that belief, albeit imperfectly, none of us are perfect, It's not what I'm saying. But if people make a profession to believe in Jesus, and they bear out that belief, then we can, with a large degree of certainty, assure that person of salvation. We can loose upon them the grace and freedom of Christ. But if someone else makes that same profession and then ceases to bear any fruit of Jesus in their lives, things like a brokenness over sin, things like a desire to obey Him, if they don't have any of that fruit in their life, then we can bind them to the truth. We can expose them to the dangerous place that they are in. Despite what they might say, they may be in danger of not actually knowing Jesus in a saving way. As I was writing, I thought of the words of Jesus. He said this himself. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The order of those words, church, make all the difference. Love for Jesus comes first, first, by faith alone in Jesus. We love him first. It's not about what we do. But as we love Jesus, right? We're saved by faith alone, but your faith in Jesus will never stay alone. It will bear fruit, the fruit of obedience in keeping with repentance. And if it does not, I'm not talking about perfection here talking about progress if we're not seeing a progress of fruit obedience and keeping with repent, repentance that's a problem it's a huge problem and if if people are 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 not progressing then they really really need to be concerned about whether or not they've actually come to know Jesus which is scary but the beautiful thing is they can turn at any point and accept and know Jesus, and come to salvation, and get found, and then begin to live free, and progress, and bear fruit. I realize this process isn't a fun one. I realize oftentimes it's not fair. But cultivating a community that fosters Christian maturity requires that all of us take up the sometimes unfair process of exposing faults, and our fellow brothers and sisters. This is what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. It means like loving our brothers and sisters enough to risk the relationship, to pull them aside and say, I've seen what's going on. I've seen this pattern. Is it reality? Or is it just my perception? If it is reality, dude, I'm really concerned for your marriage. I'm really concerned for where this goes. I'm really concerned for your spiritual life. I'm concerned for you. I love you. God loves you. He wants you to to come back. I want you to come back. This is what love looks like. This is how we grow up, how we grow our brothers and sisters to look more like Jesus. And Lord knows, we need prayer for this, don't we? Loving our enemies, which is really what we talked about last week, we need prayer for that. Praying for those who persecute us, we need prayer for that. Lovingly speaking hard truths to those of us that we're close to, Lord Jesus knows we need prayer for that. We can't do any of this without the power of the Spirit, without the strength of God working through us. So what do you say? How about we pray? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Jesus, sometimes I scratch my head why you would include us in any of this at all. We are cowardly. We are selfish. We struggle in so many ways, and yet you invite us to be powerful instruments in your hands, to be instruments and tools in the hands of our Redeemer for your glory For the good of our brothers and sisters, I pray, Lord Jesus, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would dispense a greater portion of your Spirit into our life right now. That you would breathe a fresh wind of courage into our life where we wouldn't ask the question of fairness, but we would constantly be asking the question of faithfulness to our Creator God, to Jesus Christ, to you, the Holy Spirit, on how can we love our brothers and sisters well And Father, if that requires from us to speak hard things, would you empower us to do it in love? Would you empower us to do it in grace? Would you give those that were confronting humility? And Father, as a community of faith, would the radical love of Jesus completely transform us so that we look so utterly and completely different from this world in beautiful ways that our community could not help but ask us, what is up with you all? And Father, when that happens, give us, give us words to declare the reason for the hope and the grace and the love and the joy and the peace that we live with. It's Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Find us, Lord, in our sin and set us free for your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.